And he is an associate professor of international studies at the University of Washington, a co-host of the Foreign Affairs Podcast, American Prestige. American Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And before we get into this, I don't do it that often, but if everyone could like and subscribe, we'd really appreciate it. It really helps with the podcast in a lot of different ways. And if you like the podcast, also feel free to review it. It actually helps with the algorithm, the almighty algorithm. So thank you for that. But Derek, Let's get into the news and let's talk uh, about a report that recently came out from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute on global arms spending. So, uh, yeah, congratulations are in order. The Stockholm International Peace Research Institute issued its new annual reports saying that uh, 2022 saw uh, everybody devote a record $2.24 trillion dollars around the world to military spending. So congratulations to all of us. We did it. Uh, we broke the record. We did it. Yeah, we're, we're very, very happy uh, to hear this. Uh, of course, the war in Ukraine was a big driver of this. There was a 13% jump in defense spending across Europe that I think uh, is no coincidence. Finland, uh, which, of course, shares a very long border with Russia, increased its military spending by about 36%. Uh, so I, I think the you, know, you can see where this is coming from. Uh, the United States, of course, remains the global leader in this field. Uh, $877 billion. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we did. We did. Oh, we, God, thank Derek, you. thank you. Oh, you're welcome to the rest of the world. Across the yeah, Zoom. Uh, oh, it's a beautiful day. Um, I'm going to celebrate. The U.S. accounts for about 39% of all military spending Hell worldwide. Yeah. So that, that dwarfs uh, everybody else's percentages. Thank you for that, Derek. Thank you for that good news. Uh, so let's turn now to Sudan. And we actually intend to have a special on Sudan in the coming days, so look out for that. But Derek, let us know what's going on and prepare people for our deeper dive. Yes, Sudan has been uh, in a series of ceasefires this week, 72-hour uh, ceasefires. There's one, uh, the military and the rapid support forces, who are the two combatant parties here, uh, agreed on Friday to a three-day ceasefire because of the Eid, uh, Eid al-Fitr holiday. That kind of kind of did survive, I suppose. They agreed to another 72-hour ceasefire that went into effect on Tuesday. Uh, I, I'm, I'm hedging here because neither of these ceasefires have involved an actual cessation uh, of firing, but they have brought lulls in the combat, enough so that, for example, foreign governments have been able to extract diplomatic staff from Khartoum, uh, the U.S., the U.K., a number of other countries have done this. And some countries have even gone so far as to launch full evacuation missions for their all of their nationals who are in Sudan, at least the ones who want to leave. The U.K. Uh, in particular has done this. The U.S. has not. Uh, it has stationed two warships off of the coast of Port Sudan in the Red Sea, uh, potentially maybe to facilitate uh, an evacuation if the uh, if the US government decides to go through with that there are i think by one estimate 16,000 somewhere around 16,000 US nationals in Sudan not all of them probably want to leave uh so uh, it's unclear how big a challenge this would be but but again the these 
ceasefires have have give, have opened space at least uh, for these people to to be evacuated and for Sunnis civilians who are in the areas of the heaviest of heaviest fighting, which is mostly centered on Khartoum, Omdurman, uh, Bahri, the three cities at the confluence of the the Blue and White Niles. To, to get out of there. There's been some fighting in Darfur, although uh, there are conflicting reports about this. There are some reports that the two sides have been able to kind of maintain some local ceasefires in Darfur, and, and that's lessened the critical kind of combat. But certainly Khartoum uh, and Omdurman have seen very heavy fighting. People have been getting out of there. Tens of thousands of people at this point have crossed borders into Egypt, South Sudan, Chad, uh, there could potentially be hundreds of thousands to come uh, behind them. The folks who are still in those areas are increasingly under pressure, not just from the combat, which, as I say, has been at a little bit of an ebb thanks to these ceasefires. Uh, they're increasingly at, at, at risk because of lack of food, lack of clean water or access to these things, uh, hospitals shutting down. So if you get sick, uh, there's no place to go. Uh, so, you know, a lot of lot of ancillary effects are starting to kick in the longer this fighting goes on. The crisis is big. The situation is very tough and there's difficulty in internal movements. We often stand in long queues to get bread. It happened many times where we get bread, but never the amount that my family need. Now, there is there have been uh, some interesting developments in the last couple of days on Thursday the commander of the Sudanese military, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, approved a 72-hour extension of the current 72-hour ceasefire. He also agreed to a proposal by the Intergovernmental, Intergovernmental Authority on Development, which is this sort of Horn of Africa regional uh, block, political block, to send a negotiating team to Juba, the capital of South Sudan, for talks with the RSF. I haven't seen yet any... Uh, response to this from the RSF. So I don't know if this ceasefire extension is actually going to go into effect. I don't know if they're going to send a negotiating team to Juba, uh, but this is potentially a a significant development. We'll have to wait and see uh, what happens. The other interesting, uh, I guess, it could be a sideline or it could be something more significant that has emerged here is the status of the former leader of Sudan, president, dictator, whatever you want to call him, Omar al-Bashir, the prison in which Bashir was being held in Khartoum was attacked, apparently by the RSF earlier in the week. There's some speculation that he may have been able to escape uh, during that attack. There are certainly other people who were active in Bashir's administration who uh, operated, who were imprisoned in that facility, who have escaped. Uh, now, the Sudanese military says it moved Bashir and a few other key prisoners to a different facility prior to the attack. And yet at least one, to my knowledge, of the people who were supposedly moved has turned up free, uh, having left the prison uh, in the attack. So there's no confirmation that uh, that Bashir was actually moved. There's a lot of concern uh, kind of under the surface that Bashir, or if not Bashir, then uh, some of these, some of the forces that really thrived under his rule could use this conflict as a way to kind of get back into power. And in particular, that would be kind of Islamist elements. Uh, Bashir was very friendly with uh, Al-Qaeda, for example, and and kind of cultivated uh, Islamist elements within Sudanese politics. They've been on the outside looking into some degree. Neither the RSF nor the military has really 
uh, embraced these kind of religious uh, elements, these these political Islam uh, elements. So it's possible uh, they could be viewing this conflict now between the two uh, military forces as a a path uh, to kind of navigate to get back into some degree of power. Uh, and that does seem to be a, a concern. It's not obviously uh, at the forefront of anybody's minds in this situation, but it is it is there. How has the U.S. reacted to it? Uh, you, you talked a little bit about this, but has there been any response from the Biden administration? Is this just a very low-level issue for it? Uh, this most recent ceasefire was allegedly at least mediated by the U.S. Uh, and the Saudis. Um, Anthony Blinken has said that he's on the phone with both sides trying to uh, extend the ceasefire, trying to get them to participate in this uh, IGAD peace process. Uh, so the, the administration says it has been active. Um, you know, I think it took a little little while for the U.S. to kind of get its legs under it because, f- frankly, the U.S. doesn't have a lot of uh, open channels of of leverage or influence in Sudan at this point. The U.S. interest in Sudan for many years now has focused mainly on counterterrorism. And really, when Bashir was in power, there was no relationship. But since then, uh, it's been mostly like kind of counterterrorism. It's been, um, you know, kind of vague, platitudinous statements about democracy and, you know, installing civilian rule amid all this military kind of uh, control. And the other big thing has been getting the Sudanese government to sign to finally go ahead with the Abraham Accords, which they have agreed to in principle with Israel to normalize relations. But because of all the political turmoil in Khartoum, they haven't gone any further than that. Uh, that's been a, a U.S. priority as well. But, you know, none of these things really gives you uh, a lot of leeway to engage with any of these parties or a relationship uh, with any of these parties. It's sort of superficial stuff. So I think it's uh, it's taken a little while f- to, to find an in uh, now they say that they're, you know, pushing the the parties to to stop the fighting, but who knows? Once again, the U.S. serves as international peace broker. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Let's turn now to polling in the Turkish election, and also loyal listeners, we intend to have a special on the Turkish election as well. So look forward to that. Yeah, we'll have that right before, hopefully, right before the election. There've been a couple of polls. Uh, this week that show that those big leads that the opposition had over uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his uh, coalition uh, several several weeks ago uh, have basically evaporated. Uh, they, they've they've really shrunk uh, um, to nothing uh, since the opposition settled on Kemal Kilic Darolu as uh, as its joint candidate. Uh, there was a poll from uh, a Turkish pollster, Arya. Uh, that this week that gave Kilic Daralu a 1.4 percentage point lead over Erdogan and a hypothetical runoff uh, between the two of them, which is way down from what it was uh, before Kilic Daralu. I mean, even that hypothetical matchup, Kilic Daralu was doing much better uh, before he actually became the candidate, which is interesting, I think. Another poll from Al Monitor that was commissioned by Al Monitor uh, put the presidential race in basically a tie. In the first round, uh, it put Erdogan a little bit ahead uh, with 45.2%, Kilic Darlu at 44.9%. This poll was very interesting because they, they asked the respondents a number of other questions, and, and it sets up 
you know, a, a large majority, over 60 percent, say they're not happy with Turkey's current political environment. Uh, around 46 percent say that the country's on the wrong track, uh, which is a plurality. There, there's a you know smaller percentage that say they think it's on the right track, and then a, another percentage that just don't know. I guess these things should be working to Kilistarlo's benefit, but they're not. Clearly, uh, he's bleeding support based on uh, the polling, at least. Uh, also, from his perspective, the uh, young voters in Turkey, voters aged 18 to 25, there is a surprisingly, I would say, large portion, about a fifth of them, who say they are undecided. This should be a prime kind of uh, ground for, for Kilistarlu, and he's not, I think, getting enough of them to support a clear polling edge. The opposition picked maybe its least charismatic candidate, but the one that also checks boxes in terms of getting the support of a wide cross-section of society. Uh, this was a risk that, I, I mean, I think we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, the decision to nominate Kilic Darulu, who's uh, the oldest candidate, he's older than Erdogan, he comes from uh, the oldest party in Turkey, the, the Republican People's Party, and is identified with the old guard of that party. And I think there may be some disconnect happening here, I'm speculating, but maybe some disconnect with young people, uh, which he needs, frankly, uh, if he's going to win this election. There was a development this week. Erdogan had to cancel a number of campaign events uh, Wednesday and Thursday, and he may have to cancel more. Uh, I haven't heard of that. I haven't heard of him canceling any more yet, but it may come to that after a what he said was a stomach bug or what his office said was a stomach bug. Uh, he got sick mid-interview. Actually, there's video circulating. You can see it online. Get sick mid-interview, and uh, then had to cancel these events. There have been rumors that he's in much more serious straits. That he suffered a heart attack or you know. Uh, whatever. I, I don't think that hasn't come from any credible uh, source. And he did appear in a video call uh, to commemorate the opening of Turkey's first nuclear power plant on Thursday to kind of try to dispel these rumors of more serious health problems. And he didn't look good from what I can tell. Uh, I've just seen stills of the video. He doesn't look uh, all that chipper, but it's conceivable that that's just the lingering effects of whatever uh, bug that he had. So uh, something to watch. I mean, health could be, uh, you know, if, if his health is is questioned, if there's more serious uh, evidence of something bigger at play here, uh, that could flip votes on the margin. And this seems to be an election that's going to be played out on the margin. It seems to be that close. So anything could shift the balance. Any inklings or rumblings from the State Department or the Biden administration? No, I haven't seen anything, and I don't think they'll say a word uh, until after the election when they'll congratulate whoever wins. I mean, Turkey, you, you can't, you know, I don't think you can, the U.S. doesn't want to risk, you know, alienating right, Erdogan. Yeah. Certainly, I think there may be a, a preference for Kilish Darulu or for the, the opposition to kind of carry this election, but they're not going to risk uh, alienating the incumbent by letting that preference be known. Thanks, Derek. And let's move on now to Azerbaijan imposing a checkpoint near Karabakh. Yeah, this happened over the weekend. Uh, the Azerbaijani military put a an official checkpoint along what's known as the Lachin Corridor, which connects Karabakh to Armenia. It's the, the only road network that, or the only road that connects 
Karabakh is basically Karabakh's lifeline to the outside world. Um, the Arme- or the Azerbaijanis have been claiming for a while that Armenian gunrunners are using this road to funnel weapons into Karabakh. Uh, I don't think they presented any evidence to support this. And since December, the road has been blockaded anyway by a group of uh, so-called environmental activists. This is how the Azerbaijanis describe them, um, you know, by most other accounts. These are government, I don't want to say employees, but they're working on behalf of the Azerbaijani government to cut this road. The problem with all of this is that uh, one of the jobs of, or well, many problems, one of them being that this basically uh, imposes a blockade on Karabakh, which is a, a very dangerous situation. Uh, but from a, the, the wider geopolitical perspective, one of the jobs that the Russian peacekeepers in this region, who have been there since the 2020 Karabakh war ended, supposedly to enforce the ceasefire agreement that Moscow brokered to end that conflict, uh, one of their jobs is supposed to be making sure that this corridor remains open for at least basic needs, you know, food, other goods like that to get through. Uh, and they don't seem to be doing it. The, the checkpoint, I, I saw one piece, uh, I think, uh, I can't remember what outlet it was in earlier this week. It was in, I think it might have been Reuters, uh, that says that the checkpoint that the Azerbaijanis have, have set up is basically right next to the facility that the Russian peacekeepers, uh, are using as their kind of base on this corridor. And they've done nothing to, to kind of intercept or interrupt this plan to, to blockade the, enclave. Uh, on Wednesday, the Russian government fired, removed, dismissed uh, the head of that peacekeeping force after, interestingly, a phone call between Vladimir Putin and the Prime Minister of Armenia, Nikol Pashinyan, in which I assume Pashinyan had some things to say about what the, the peacekeepers have been doing or not doing. They appointed a higher-ranking officer, uh, Alexander Lentsov. He's a colonel general. He's the deputy commander of the Russian army. So it's possible with that, you know, added kind of uh, rank, he may have some leeway or latitude to uh, respond to things that uh, are happening that the Azerbaijanis are doing. I don't know. Uh, But clearly, this is a very tense situation. And and it's uh, the potential for it to turn into real serious conflict as opposed to the kind of border sniping that we've seen back and forth over the last several months is very real. I mean, this is, you know, people's lives potentially at risk if if Azerbaijan really tightens the news on Karabakh. So uh, something to watch. Thanks, Derek. Let's move on now to South Korea. Yes, exciting stuff in South Korea. Yoon Suk-yeol visited Washington on Wednesday. It was a full state visit with the dinner and everything. Uh, He and Joe Biden, I think, sang karaoke even. Uh, uh, Who knows? Uh, Maybe maybe we can get some uh, an audio recording of that and stick it in here. Long, long time ago. I can still remember how the music used to make me smile. Basically, I mean, there were a number of items on the agenda. The main headline uh, that came out of this meeting uh, with Biden was a new agreement on nuclear deterrence on the Korean Peninsula. The big items appear to be an agreement to allow U.S. ballistic missile submarines to be deployed to South Korean ports, which is something that hasn't happened since the 1980s, and the formation of what they're calling a nuclear consultative group to coordinate kind of planning in the eventual for the eventuality or the possibility of a North Korean nuclear attack. What's really interesting to me about this is that 
this is a, a very abrupt shift to talk about deterrence as opposed to denuclearization, which has always been the U.S. government's watchword with respect to Korea. The demand has been, uh, or the goal has been denuclearizing. It's been getting North Korea to give up its nuclear arsenal, no matter how many times the North Korean government or North Korean officials say, we are not giving up our nuclear arsenal. This has remained perpetually the U.S. goal here. Uh, this finally seems like maybe a tacit recognition that that's never going to happen. Uh, which is long overdue, but probably a good thing from the perspective of policymaking, uh, finally kind of recognizing reality. So the focus is shifting now instead to this idea of making the South Koreans feel more comfortable under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. Now, the sub, you know, th this, this idea of deploying nuclear armed submarines to South Korea is disturbing. It's possible, I suspect, uh, in fact, that this is, this is the case that the administration offered this to Yoon as an alternative to South Korea developing its own nuclear arsenal, which is something Yoon talked about back in January, kind of speculated openly uh, about the idea of his government or South Korean government putting resources into developing its own stockpile of nukes to counter North Korea, which would have been far more provocative, far more dangerous from the perspective of a potential conflict. So uh, the submarine thing may have been the best of a bad set of, of options and under those circumstances. Uh, there were other things that they, uh, other issues that they talked about. There's been a big push for South Korea to start supplying direct military aid to Ukraine. South Korea has a lot of weapons stockpiled. It's got a very robust arms manufacturing industry and, you know, NATO and, and the U.S. seem to be reaching their capacity limits in terms of being able to supply the Ukraine, Ukrainians with uh, ammunition and weapons. So there's been a push for that. I don't think that they, uh, I haven't seen any indication that they came to an agreement on that, but Yoon is under a, a fair amount of pressure, I think, to step up in that regard. And he set a red line, you know, if there's another, if there's a Russian attack that kills a lot of civilians, that would be a red line for South Korea, and then, then he would get involved. So the fact that he's even talking about that suggests, I think, that he's on course to, to eventually join the, the Ukraine club. And then the other issue is the, uh, they, did, they did have, Yoon had some meetings, not necessarily with Biden, but he did have some meetings about uh, tech investment. The South Korean semiconductor industry is becoming more and more intertwined with the U.S. tech sector. Uh, but at the same time, it's also struggling with uh, U.S. trade restrictions on China, which uh, is both a major customer for South Korea and a major supplier uh, of components for uh, South Korean chips. So that's a, that's another thing. And again, I don't know uh, that he and Biden came to any accord about the trade restrictions, but he certainly did uh, come away with a number of deals for major investments uh, in South Korea's tech sector. Is there any discussion about how this might affect the so-called new Cold War between the U.S. and China? New Cold War. Is this sort of a proxy thing happening here, or is this genuinely a local regional issue that doesn't have larger geopolitical implications? Um, I mean, I don't, I, I, you, I don't, when you say this, you, you mean the, the sub thing, like the nuclear deterrence? Yeah, that's sorry, piece. the nuclear deterrence piece, basically. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it, I mean, given, since this was just, announced uh, on Wednesday. I haven't seen any big analysis of how it would play into the, the new Cold War. Um, I will say, I, I think I, I saw, and I haven't read the piece, but I think I, I did see some a response from China 
to that announcement and they were not terribly thrilled. They, they, uh, you know, talked about destabilizing the, the, the peninsula and, you know, kind of, uh, raising the risks of a conflict. So, uh, they're clearly not happy with it. South Korea is of course part of the U S thinking in terms of the new cold war, in terms of building this Indo-Pacific alliance or, or kind of, uh, collection of, countries all interested in containing China, the South Koreans have been less, I think, interested in being part of something like that. But Yoon being conservative, being you know somewhat enthralled to the United States, being very interested in getting as much U.S. protection as possible against North Korea has taken some steps to make South Korea more useful to the U.S. in that regard. This, uh, you know, his detente with Japan over the World War II reparations issue you know, that that's part of kind of ironing out internal, any internal uh, inconsistencies in the, the kind of network of, of allies that the U.S. is trying to build. So uh, I think he's trying to, to be more helpful in that regard. The Ukraine, I, oddly enough, I think the, the, the push to uh, or not oddly enough, I guess, but but even though it's not directly involving China, I think the push to get South Korea to get into the Ukraine game is part of this is part of kind of bringing South Korea more fully in line with the U.S. in a general geopolitical sense and not just with respect to North Korea. So uh, if he agrees to that, if he agrees to start sending weapons to Ukraine, you'll know that there's uh, there's been some progress in that direction or some developments in that direction. Thanks, Derek. And this leads pretty naturally to our final subject, which is Ukraine. Yes, uh, there's a couple of things of note. Uh, the battlefield, uh, in terms of a battlefield update, the Russian military claimed last Friday that its forces were had entered the western part of Bakhmut, which, uh, as people should know, has been the, the focus of the fighting for really seems like months now. The Ukrainians have, have lost, I mean, w- weeks ago they lost the eastern part of the, the city, which is uh, across the Bakhmutka River. They've fallen back now to where they're just holding kind of a western fringe uh the russians have entered that western fringe the the fighting is as it has been uh slow going it's block by block basically so you know they're they're advancing but um you know the ukrainians are still uh resisting and still apparently not planning to withdraw which seems uh, wild to me but uh that's their position uh, the other thing to note is uh, a claim from the Institute for the Study of War, and I would take this with a grain of salt because ISW does a lot of Ukraine cheerleading, uh, but they they claim that they've seen uh, geolocated footage uh, from pro-Russia military bloggers. That's, the, that's almost a, a direct quote there, uh, showing that the Ukrainian military has taken up a permanent position in Kherson Oblast on the eastern bank of the Dnipro River. Uh, this is significant if you've been kind of anxiously awaiting the Ukrainian spring counteroffensive, which we've been told is coming for months now. If the Ukrainians really do have a foothold now on the eastern bank of the, the river, they, they had obviously last year when the Russians withdrew from much of Kherson, they, they took everything up to the western bank of the river, if they've now been able to cross the river and establish that foothold, a, a, a defensible foothold on the eastern bank, that's a logical place from which to begin 
such a counter offensive and it may be the opening uh, gambit of that. They're bogging down the Russian uh, fighters, some of the best combat units there, including the Wagner unit, who you've heard about, who are the, the fighting warriors and part of this conflict. It enables them to move in different areas. Now, the big question is, where is that counteroffensive going to take place? When is it going to take place? Now, I haven't seen, other than ISW, I have not seen anybody comment on this. Uh, the Ukrainians, the deputy administrator of the province, uh, told Ukrainian media earlier this week that their forces have been conducting raids on the eastern bank of the river uh, without uh, saying anything about a permanent presence. Uh, but that may be as close as they they get to acknowledging it until something more happens. Uh, so that's that. I mean, that does look like if it's true, that's the direction that this counteroffensive is going to go. Uh, obviously, I have no indication how that's going to play out. Uh, the other thing of note that happened this week was Xi Jinping, the president of China, spoke by phone with Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. This is the first time they had chatted since well before the Russian invasion last year. Um, if you've been paying attention to the story, Zelensky has been pushing for a while now for some sort of meeting uh, by phone or video or whatever uh, with Xi. She has been saying over and over again that he's prepared to talk. He's, you know, he wants to have a call. He's interested, uh, but he hasn't done it. He hasn't actually done anything to make it happen. I'm not entirely sure uh, why he finally decided to do it yesterday, although there have been a couple of recent events. Uh, the, as people may know, I think we talked about this on the, the show, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, and the uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen visited China a few weeks ago. They may have, it's possible they talked Xi into finally making this call. Uh, but the other thing that I think is a little bit more interesting is the Chinese ambassador to France, Lu Xie, uh, made some comments last week basically dismissing the idea of uh, sovereignty for post-Soviet states. He, he insisted that there's nothing, there's no international agreement that actually gives these countries like Ukraine uh, sovereignty. And that generated, understandably, a lot of blowback um, among basically a lot of ex-Soviet states. The, 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 the Baltic countries were you know, all very angry about this. Central Asia, uh, the republics in Central Asia were quite angry. And that's uh, a region that China really has a lot of uh, stake in. So the blowback from these remarks, which by I, I think Shea just made off the cuff. I don't think it was an expression of uh, state policy or Chinese policy. And in fact, the Chinese government then uh, relatively quickly walked that back and said, of course, we recognize the sovereignty of all these countries. Uh, but I think the, the dust up from that might have had something to do with Xi kind of uh, saying, okay, I need to need to do something to change the, the story here because this is not redounding well to, to our diplomatic efforts. Anyway, uh, whatever it was, uh, she talked about sending a, special, a group of special representatives to Ukraine to try and kickstart peace talks. Uh, I don't see that bearing any fruit, but anything's possible, and China is uh, in the peacemaking game uh, these days, given, the, given what they, they did with Saudi Arabia and Iran, so... Uh, who knows? Uh, it, it would be uh, it'll be an interesting to, interesting to see if they actually seriously pursue uh, a, a peacemaking approach here, if they can make any progress. So, of course, there's a lot of talk in Washington, D.C. about fears of China 
doing something in the world unclear about whether it's related to a grand ideological project or just power politics. How do you think these recent moves relate to that, that, that worry, that anxiety or, or that Chinese global project? Um, I mean, I think the, the whole situation over this, this ambassador Luchet was, was interesting to me because it, it was very much, I feel like the China kind of doing damage control is Chinese government doing damage control. They, they, they realized that what he said went too far for, for comfort. And, uh, it, it does, I think, reflect a, you know, I mean, we've talked about this. China's not trying to be the global hegemon. They're not trying to, you know, they don't want to, they're not trying to kind of put military bases around the world, but they do want to play on a great power stage. And there's a recognition that that means you know, maintaining good relations and, and, uh, having, you know, strong diplomatic ties with a lot of different places, even if they strain over this issue or that issue. But, but it seems uh, the, the response to what Luce said, the, the quickness, uh, you know, just how, how fast they were out with, oh, no, we don't, that's not policy. Like, we don't agree with that. We, we think everybody's, uh, everybody's wonderful. You're all special, uh, snowflakes and we love you all. Uh, that, that to me, is an indication that they, you know, they're aware of their position and they're aware of kind of uh, needing to maintain uh, good ties with a lot of different places, uh, including in Europe. And I, you know, if they do send this negotiating team to Ukraine, you know, I'm sure the United States will say, uh, we're we're happy for any initiative that could you know lead to peace or some uh, platitude like that, but uh, it's probably going to irk the U.S. if China makes any headway here because the U.S. certainly can't make any headway having uh, once again taken a side instead of trying to play the role of mediator again as uh, was the case in the Middle East with Iran and Saudi Arabia. So uh, another instance of, of maybe uh, we'll have to wait and see, but it could be another instance of China kind of being able to step in where the U.S. cannot because of policy choices that Washington has made. Derek Davison, your knowledge never ceases to impress me. Thank you so much, and everyone will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.